Welcome back to Resident Reels, everybody. You are listening to your favorite podcasters. I'm Adam. And I'm Chandler. And uh, today we are kicking off our, uh, you know, November theme here in the U.S. November seems to be kind of a politically involved month with different elections and things like that. So our theme for this week was political films. Uh, So I picked The Imitation Game from 2014, directed by Morton Tildum. And Chandler's movie. I picked good old Patriot Games from 1992 by Philip Noyce. Right. I remember the director's name because it just made me think of a meme of like Noyce, Noyce. And I was like, that's terrible to be thinking (laughs) that right now. All right. Well, do you want to get into it first? Oh, yeah, sure. So, yeah, Patriot Games. I mean, it's based off of, uh, you know, the Tom Clancy book novel of the same name, you know, focusing on this character that's a big central theme of his series of books known as Jack Ryan. So it's very much like not based off of anything true. It's, you know, a bit fantasy thriller, you know, crazy nonsense. I think people recognize Tom Clancy more now from like video games, you know, with like Ubisoft with like, you know, Rainbow Six and you know, Splinter Cell and stuff like that. But Jack Ryan has been mostly this adapted into film and television now because the big Jack Ryan series on Amazon with John Krasinski. Oh, that's right. We're bringing John Krasinski back into the mix, Adam. (laughs) I'm so thrilled about that. But uh, I kind of hop back to one of my more favorite Jack Ryan uh, adaptations, which is when Harrison Ford played Jack Ryan, which was like... It's weird digging up about the production history because the this is set in a trilogy of films and this is the second one and the first one did not have Harrison Ford. It had Alec Baldwin. Good to have Alec Baldwin back into the mix. Man, we're just bringing everyone back in this episode. <laughs> oh, man. So apparently between films, Alec Baldwin got bored because they were taking so much time in production to try and adapt Patriot Games that he took on like a Broadway show or something. But then also it's like insider things were happening where like Harrison Ford expressed interest in the role. Harrison Ford had a contract deal with Paramount for a movie. The movie fell under... And so they were like in debt to Harrison Ford because the movie didn't get released that he like essentially filmed completely of and it just died in the editing room or something for funding or whatever. It just never got released. So they're like, hey, you know, we'll pay you a three picture deal to play Jack Ryan for like nine million dollars. And that just like allowed people to quietly push out Alec Baldwin because no one liked him. Um, I am a nerd and I did look it up and he absolutely the show that he would have left because the dates line up to do on Broadway would have been a streetcar named Desire. So like low-key good for him. He played the main guy in Streetcar. It's just very funny, like gossip and politics, because like Alec Baldwin has been like in interviews being very butthurt about it. But then like Harrison Ford just doesn't give a fuck. He's Harrison Ford, you know? But also funny thing, Tom Clancy was initially very displeased with the script he got, and he, like, didn't see any, like, uh, dailies or any any, like, cuts of the film or anything. So he publicly, through the media, was like, I don't trust these guys with my movie. I, I want my name removed from it. And, like, it was until, like, that he saw one of the first edited cuts of the movie, he then was just like, 
oh, I'm actually genuinely impressed in how you depicted how CIA gathering works. You know, uh, I, I give my support back, which it, it was such a turning for him, turning point for him. Uh, he like flipped coin because then he was like, yes, adapt some of all fears, adapt clear and present danger. I'm all for it, which is funny because Harrison Ford only does clear and present danger. And then it got into another production hell when trying to adapt some of all fears because people felt like it wasn't possible because of Russian Soviet stuff and complexities or whatever. But then like, you know, a different adaptation with I think it was Ben Affleck. But also like, man, not going public like that first and then like essentially recant is recanting the word I'm looking for. I don't know. Taking back like what you said because the public's already now going to be like okay cool we don't trust this movie and that like that was the first thing that got said that's crazy yeah so then yeah some of all fears had been affleck in the role and i think that came out in like the early 2000s or something and then there was another one that's like tr- was trying to be like a soft reboot called jack ryan shadow recruit and it has oh god one of the marvel guys um Chris Pine had Chris Pine in the lead role. It was not good. I can tell you that much. It was not good. So this movie just, I come back to it because it's, it's weird, this viewing of it for me, because I have a better, I have a little more knowledge of the historical context of like Ireland specifically, because part of my, my time in grad school, uh, we did a international trip to Ireland for an, uh, like an intensive art studies for two weeks, I think it was. So I learned a lot about the history of theater in Ireland and more so the art because theater is like the biggest art in Ireland, very surprisingly. Like Irish playwrights and actors and stuff, like they were like the leads in fighting for revolution, which is very unique of a revolutionary movement, which is also like, it's only been like, a little over a hundred years since their revolution too. So like they're fairly young country as well in the perspective of things. Yeah, I feel like sometimes I forget that like the IRA was like an actual thing that was like not good. I feel like a lot of times in which says something I think as well, not a good thing, but about like American media is oftentimes the bad guys are, you know, have a more Eastern focus and so it was cool to watch a watch a film that you know the the antagonists the bad guys were also like western it also kind of maybe arguably skews the perspective of the irish people who are stuck in northern ireland because it it this movie made them seem like they were only bad guys and that was it oh sure yeah yeah it did so this also has like a stellar cast like you have harrison ford in the lead role as jack ryan you have Ann Archer playing his wife. Sean Bean is your main bad IRA splinter cell group guy who's just a very emotionally driven, which we'll get into in a sec. Samuel O. Jackson appears for a small little role in this and then becomes important at the end. And then James Earl Jones is in this too. A king among men. It's weird because this movie is so much like a middle book and chronology of Jack Ryan because this is like after he's left the CIA his first time 
and he's gone to be a professor, which is like so weird in the timeline of Jack Ryan. And I only know a little bit from reading some of the books because it gets messy. And, you know, Tom Clancy has passed away. So new people are writing books and it just gets crazier because I was reading the synopses of some of the new books. And I was like, he's he's enacting executive orders of like a war president now. He's like president of the U.S. after an oh, attack on what? the Capitol from... It was like Chinese or J Japanese hijacking of airplanes crashing to the Capitol when a joint Congress session. It's It was insane. I was just like, too, too much. Okay, we're going to go back to this. That's crazy. I, I came into this completely blind. Like I've been, I watched this as like an isolated individual film. It's, it's interesting to know how much happens after this and the little bit that happened before as well. It is insane. The escapades it goes on. But like this movie is clearly like drenched in a lot of like Cold War politics and mentality, which is very like cynical, pessimistic and just dark because it's a lot of mistrust of other foreign agencies a lot, it feels like. And it has this kind of narrative that like America is the only one that can actively do any productive good, which is a very patriotic, arguably nationalistic. So it's just an interesting perspective. And I think that just mainly comes from like the source material and less of the film was really pushing that. I think it's very much source material. Um, so I'll just dive into the synopsis here. Yeah, go for it. All right. So Jack Ryan, he's a former Marine, then CIA analyst, now a civilian history professor at the U.S. Naval Academy. But it's also kind of confusing because you wonder if he's actually still working for the CIA because of like his weird contacts with the CIA and stuff. And just like openly being a part of conversations and meetings all the time. I was like, hmm, interesting. <laughs> like the CIA clearly like Jack Bryan a lot because he's really good at what he does. But like he also knows for his family's sake, he shouldn't be in the CIA because it literally drives his wife crazy of like stress and stuff because he's almost died multiple times. Well, the favor was repaid in this film. <laughs> and I did also list out in the novels universe, he, after this, he then becomes deputy director of the CIA. Then he becomes the national security advisor, which is a board of cabinet for the presidency in the U.S. Then he becomes a vice president. And then with the crazy attack on the Capitol, becomes president. Look at his resume. I hope that would be fun if somebody like built uh, a fake resume for Jack Ryan. I'd love to see what that looks like. It'd be crazy. Because then also, like, after he serves, finishes the one term of presidency, he goes into retirement. The guy who then runs for president and is president, he doesn't like a lot of the things he's doing. So then he runs for a second term of presidency and arguably, like, super wins. But apparently there's a lot of other, like, CIA mysterious stuff. And, like, this is where, like, the weird like Rainbow Six initiatives and John Clark, who we don't see John Clark in this movie. He comes in in the next movie, Clear and Present Danger. He's like the super secret operative that like breaks all Geneva conventions and just does the most dirtiest of dirty work for the CIA and stuff like that, like wet work and stuff. Like I don't want to know and never let me know. Yeah, crazy stuff happens in the future of this alternate universe. So the movie starts, we're, we're in the UK. Jack is preparing for a speech. He's with his family. So it's like a double E family vacation. He's doing like this like 
speech to the Naval Academy in the UK about some big uh, information. It was like a rally. It's like a morale boosting speech. It felt like nothing important because there's no substance that we got as the audience. We just saw like the last two sentences of it. And we're like, cool, great. His his wife and his daughter, so he has a little daughter, they're out, you know, being tourists in the UK. And, like, the UK looks gloom in this movie. Like, it's, like, it's the super rainy season. It is depressing. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> it's so dark and out and, like, overcast and hazy the whole time. It's so weird. It's so weird that, like, and then we immediately get to U- the US and it has that, like, immediate, like, almost LA feel but like we're in Baltimore Maryland and stuff like that so it's just like weird because when you think of east coast like cinematography wise you're like it is a little gloomy because it rains on the east coast a lot you know choices choices were made so anyway so Jack he gets out of his little uh you know speechy speech with you know UK naval whatever people and he's going to go meet up with his wife and daughter. And then he sees them because they're out waiting for him in like uh, some government or parliament or whatever. It's like some sort of government buildings in the UK. And they're like in this like square park field. And he sees them across the street and he waves at them. But little does he know, because we've been paying attention, I feel like better than he has as a C- ex-CIA officer, that like mischief is going on. We got these guys and these black ski masks who are prepping some some crazy thing and then he finally catches wind of something is up because these guys hop out they strap an explosive underneath this car blow up part of the car and are trying to kidnap this royal family member and jack ryan being the legend that he is gets involved and starts you know taking trying to save people's lives because he's he is this he is the hero protagonist that always feels like he has to do good. He's like the the savior complex to to a fault, to the most extreme fault, you know. And and he's not just like a, a random royal family member. He's he's the queen's cousin, and he's also the the minister of state for Northern Ireland. So he's he's a he's a big target. Which they change from the book because in the book it was actually like Prince Charles. And so when they were doing the movie, they were like, oh, maybe damn. we shouldn't do that or something. Yeah, this is fully some like random Lord something rather. Yeah, but this book was written in like the 80s, I think. It was like 83, 84 originally came out. So like it could make more sense then. But like, I think it's a smarter choice to make it a made up character that still had a lot of power of some sort it's always the smarter choice we're not gonna yeah let's not get in trouble with other you know powers of government especially now in 2023 when the queen has passed and now we have king charles so so jack ryan's getting involved and he ends up shooting and killing one of these terrorist group cells we don't know who they are at this point and that, but he also gets shot in the shoulder back so then finally uh, army guys with their big giant hats come in and are like army we're army and they like kind of defuse the rest of the situation as a couple guys escape and he he ends up in the hospital they're fixing his wound and stuff and then like he has to go to court uh, and he learns that the guy he shot and killed is actually the guy's brother that they caught who they have in custody now sorry i got like a really snippety uh synopsis so i don't have any character names it's great Oh, you're good. Uh, uh, Miller is the 
is the guy that they had in custody. Miller, right, right. Sean Bean's character. I just know him as Sean Bean because he's Sean Bean. Fair. The character's name is also Sean, if that's helpful. So <laughs> you're right. That's I remember watching this movie and I'm like, oh, it's Sean. It's Sean. Great. This this is easy. And I just forgot because it's been a few days since I watched it. This is one of those movies where it's just it's just fun, actiony. So like you just don't care about remembering. It's definitely a political thriller, but it's definitely just fun, actiony. Like we love a government agent takedown moment and, and you only need to remember like jack ryan's name because he's jack ryan you know because everyone's like jack where's agent ryan you know it's you know all that fun stuff yeah so jack goes on trial in the uk court and like uk court we we get to see as americans kind of like how different it is than american court because it's like vicious in a very different way there's there's less like composure and like using dumb legality vocabulary to make your points and make some make it more complicated that we do in the US is much more blunt and attacking it feels like in the UK it's more like how we as americans see court depicted in like film in a very extravagant way where it's over the top and lawyers are making these grand arguments and gestures. That's not how it is in the U.S. anymore. If you're in actual court, it's very procedural and boring and lots of vocabulary. And you're like, I want to leave this hell. Get me out of here. So anyways, after that, I, he Jack Ryan kind of gets threatened as he's leaving by Sean. His family goes home. They don't think anything of it because they're like, oh, he's going to go, you know, go to prison for life and stuff because he's not going to rat out his other IRA members. But we learn they are not IRA. They are a splinter group of the IRA who are trying to bring down, you know, the royal family in the UK because they're just more radical than the IRA because the IRA has historically very much been like if they do an attack, they do claim it. They have that kind of pride about themselves. So all over the media, the, the leader, he's like the American ambassador type role of Northern Ireland who has ties with the IRA because he's clearly with the IRA but doesn't publicly say it but everyone kind of like knows it because it's complicated the the whole Irish revolution and politics mess that it is because there's a lot of baggage from Belfast which is only in this movie has happened only 10 years prior roughly of the weird occupation that's kind of lasted so it's very recent, right? Because we also get a little bit snippets of like Sean's past of how his, I think his parents were killed in one of the police raids or military raids that the UK did on Belfast. And so he and his brother were the only surviving members of their family. So it's a big deal that, you know, Jack Ryan killed Sean's brother. And so Sean's got this like really, really raging grudge to get revenge on him. So he tries, the leader of the Splinter Group is like, yeah, Sean, go do it. I understand, but this is your one chance to do it. So he lets him take a few guys with him to the U.S. to try to do an attack on Jack and his family to get revenge. And it's intense. To say the least. It starts out of like, oh no, something something bad's going to happen. And like Jack is back at the Naval Academy in Virginia. Well, the 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 U.S. Naval Academy is in Annapolis, in Maryland. 
I only know that because I lived in Maryland for the last three years. So Right, because the CIA headquarters is actually in Virginia, which also, fun fact, this is the first movie that was allowed to film on CIA headquarters. So that's very cool fact because like some of the exterior and like the open in the lobby shots is the actual CIA headquarters. So that's kind of cool. Jack, Ryan, after, you know, having a good time with Samuel L. Jackson's character of getting this funny, hilarious medal of, like, don't be stupid, stupid. It's just this, like, medal with a giant target on it of just, like, shoot me first or whatever. So good. So classic. Good friends. (laughs) But after that, he's leaving and he has a little, he's got, like, the CIA, you know, sixth sense kind of, like, his, like, spider senses are tingling of, like, oop, something something's up or maybe i'm just paranoid maybe maybe that's it because i just found out sean's escaped from custody because right sean escapes from custody i skipped that wholly because as sean's about to be escorted they get to a bridge that is lifting up and they have to wait like five minutes and then like rockets hit the police escort around them and he gets broken out and they kill literally everybody even this like nobody bridge operator and it's just like these guys are bad because the guy who like split off this group from the IRA is the one who like went and and helped him escape like helped get him out of custody but also that that leader guy he also killed a bunch of other high higher up officers of the IRA because they were trying to snuff him cuz they didn't like the excessive amounts of violence and force he committed even though like a lot of people were like of course we're with you because it's what needs to be done. We do stand with you. And he like knows better because he's like, ah, they're sending so-and-so. That means they're going to take me out. So I'm going to make sure that doesn't happen and kill a bunch of people. And then we got the female who we learn is also originally a UK citizen who has just joined this group, which is very unique. And she's all she uses a red wig to hide her real identity a lot, but it doesn't work for the CIA. So yeah, so they plan an attack on Jack and his family. So two people are like stalking Jack and they're going to try and take him out. Unknowing to Jack's wife, Sean and some other guy are going after the daughter and the wife because they're just brutal and vicious and evil. Also, the scene takes place on like actually on the Chesapeake Bay Bridge, which in my opinion is a sketchy fucking bridge to begin with. I don't like that bridge at all. But it was also kind of cool, like, seeing a bridge that I've driven over before, like, in a movie. Like, that was cool. So Jack Ryan, like, almost gets taken out, but he fights the guys off. He just gets, like, punched in the face a couple times. He kills the one guy, and a bunch of naval officers are like, Mr. Ryan, are you okay? You know, as, you know, everyone's a super pro- trying to protect Jack Ryan, but he's just, you know, always like four steps ahead in a bunch of violence and fights that he's found himself in. And then we see a car race by knowing the, the assassination didn't work on Jack. And then Jack realizes, my wife, I need to find her and my daughter. So he jumps into his car trying to push away these naval officers who are like, we need to know you're okay! And stuff like that, you know, trying to do their job, you know, follow protocol of like, no, we're not allowed to, like, let you leave. Like, this is dangerous. And he's like, I'm this. he's got, like, in his brain, I'm imagining, because it's very Harrison Ford. Like, Harrison Ford does a stellar job in this movie because you understand everything. He's, he's the great. 
actor that he is, especially as an action star. His motivations are so clear. It's awesome. Even though it's like very chiseled and stoic, like facial expressions he has, you still also understand what he's thinking. He just he's somehow mastered that for everything he does. And it's great. So he's racing through trying to get to his uh, wife and daughter. So he calls the hospital. They're like, she's not there. And he's busy trying to get her on her car phone because this is also the decade of car phones. There's no cell phones. It's car phones. So he even tries to go through the operator to like do an emergency burst through call. And, and, she, and the operator's like, I can't do that. And he's like, why the hell not? Because she's on the phone, you know, talking about like getting some results from a surgery or, you know, scans from her job as a doctor. Little does she know that she's being stalked by Sean and like they luckily make it onto the highway. Like they get so lucky in the beginning because of just happenstance because when they first drive away after picking up Sally from school, Sean and his guy in their van get stopped by a child crossing guard allowing kids to cross the street. And it was just so picturesque. You've been foiled by yep. children. <laughs> so then they're on the highway and Jack manages to punt, like get a call through. And he's just like, I need you to get off the highway, get to the nearest police station as quick as possible. Just trust me. And the wife's like, oh my goodness. And like, as us as the audience, we're seeing Sean get closer and he opens the sliding door of the van and he starts shooting trying to shoot out the car and it gets intense and she's trying to get off the highway just literally open firing like we see some like convertible get all of its windows shot out like as because it's in between like the van that sean's shooting out of in the car that 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 kathy's driving they end up while trying to get off the highway they don't make it because you know the highway starts going to a frenzy because there's a guy on the highway actively shooting so like everyone's gonna go crazy on the highway because they're on a Big ass, it's a classic giant American highway. You know, Adam knows this road way too familiar. It's insane. It's intense. And they end up crashing into one of the, the median concrete pillar things. And it's just like, oh, shit. It's very brief, but you have this moment of like, did they actually get them? Because Sean's so confident. But then it's also like, nah, nah, they didn't get them. It's just Jack Ryan's family. No way. Yeah, I mean, as as the van drives, like continues to drive down the highway, like, Sean literally says something along the lines of like, oh, they're done or something like that. Like he's positive that they did not survive that crash. So then Jack immediately goes to the hospital. Like we see them get airlifted to a hospital. That honestly, that shot kind of fucked me up because we see Sally, who's this little girl with like just blood all over her face and unconscious next to her mother, who also has blood all over her face and is unconscious as they get like, taken off of the helicopter like that that was rough the wife's okay she comes out of unconsciousness she's conscious again she's okay but their daughter's not so much like they have to wait till the morning and it's really intense and stuff and then we learn that the doctors had to remove her spleen because of how badly she kind of got mangled in the car accident which is rough like i don't know what that feels like as parents like that's rough jack decides with kind of the support of his wife i mean i guess it's later he he chooses immediately to go back into the cia he just is just like goes into the office of the deputy director and is just like yo i want back in he's like i can't let you do this you're too emotional and then james earl jones is like his good buddy from the cia it's just like oh sorry am i interrupting something oh it's good to see you jack 
So you were at why we don't need our best analyst we've ever had back to work for us? Okay, cool. And that just like solidifies like, nope, he's back. And he immediately hops into the terrorist group cell of information gathering because it's kind of accurate in that sense of what it used to be like because you'd have different groups that specialize in very specific things now. Like, I don't know how it works anymore because there's so much intelligence gathering and it's, you know, confidential, understandably. So then we kind of like see Jack Ryan become like this CIA agent. He is doing some spying. He is gathering information. He's kind of coercing people. And you're like, he's doing what has to be done. But like, he clearly has a lot of emotions also tied into it. But I think he's doing a pretty good job of trying to balance it as best he can from like a lot of his previous training that we clearly see he's relying on that he's learned to like, where to walk the line for the most part. Which is kind of cool, but also he's got a lot of PTSD because he's having a lot of like flashbacks of like the last month or so. It's hard to tell how much time has passed, but it's, it's not much. Not much time has passed. But then like that also helps him unlock details from his memories of what he saw. And that's how he's like, we're trying to track the wrong people. Like we know they're probably somewhere in North Africa based on the escape that they did for Sean. That's a no-brainer that they're probably in one of these terrorist camps in Northern Africa. But they're like, I think we're trying to find the wrong person. So he's like, we need to look for the girl, the redhead, which we find out is not really a redhead. She just puts on a redhead wig. Sneaky, sneaky. So then he he also talks to the guy who's been like very publicly on the news and stuff with the IRA because he's been like, I want to give my condolences. This was not an IRA attack on the Ryan family. And he coerces him into giving him information when he's very much like, I'm not going to rat out my other countrymen. But like he doesn't because he gives him the woman. It's very spy thrillery in this moment, which is really fun and nice. Of just like, he's trying to get enough, you know, concrete information so they can actually commit to something. Because he's like, I I'm not completely sure. It's just... We have a lot of good intel, but we can't confirm everything 100%, which I think is really refreshing of just having that like fact checking and like having a making sure you have all the in, like correct information to actually commit to, you know, this attack on a camp because that's what it ends up being is like they're going to send in a special unit force to take out the whole camp. And what I think is so interesting too, though, um, with Jack Ryan's like character is seeing that emotion still amongst the protocol because that's the whole reason he even gets the information about the redhead is like that informant pretty much refuses to confirm or deny anything, and he's doing like a a fundraising thing that that like the guy he's talking to is, and so Ryan literally is like starts screaming he's like maybe i should show pictures of my daughter to the media and with her like mangled body or whatever and and that was like crazy but also i mean it got the point across and it worked because then he got the information that he needed yeah and he arguably didn't write out his countrymen because he read out a uk citizen right so that's that's the loophole and when he brings the information to the deputy director he's like how am I supposed to like work off this? Like you threatened him and you wanted information about this girl. And he's like, I never asked it about the girl. And the deputy director's like, oh, okay, maybe we're on to something. And so 
we get into the, like they have satellites flying over these camps daily kind of thing. So it's very funny when Jack's like, they probably know the routines of the satellites. Can we like reschedule them? And they're like, do you know how much resources that costs to reschedule a yeah. satellite? <laughs> and I'm just thinking like, wow, this is something in its own time compared to like now where there's like thousands of satellites up around our planet to, for all different nations gathering all kinds of information around the world. It's insane. Truly. And so they get these new images and so they can get more information on these camps and like start connecting more dots. And then there's also this bookseller, this like uh, vintage or like uh, old first edition bookseller guy who does secret work for like getting, you know, weapons and cars and supplies that we learn has been slowly tracked by the UK government and their intelligence networking. But he gets found out when he's because he's in this old building and like the electricity is like from the First World War or something is what the electrical guy says. And so he's trying to fix the like overhanging chandelier and he finds the classic old tube camera that's hiding in the ceiling and the guy's like do you know what this is and the guy immediately goes to a panic is like i've i've got to go deliver some books i'm out of here uh i'll be back you're good on your own right yep yep cool 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 and he like immediately like books it and he's like gets lost I and mean, he makes it to north africa but while there he gets killed because he's not a good enough operative in their eyes to like commit to an attack they've been planning to try and because they have someone on the inside of this cousin of the royal family, the Lord, who they did attack on at the beginning of the movie because he he's still their primary target because they're busy just trying to cause a lot of chaos. So the UK and the IRA kind of just go at it for each other. So like the UK can get really weak and maybe completely destroy the IRA so then they can sweep in and just take over. They finally get an itinerary of when he's in the US and we don't know it fully, but they leave the camp before the CIA attack on the North North African camp. And I thought that was a really cool scene because we see Jack being brought into that room for what seems like the first time to see this attack. And it's it's very real for the time because we don't we don't there's like no body cams and stuff like that. We just see the satellite passing over and we have that window of watching the satellite pass over, watching the heat maps of these people take out people. And like Jack in that moment is very conflicted because he's like, oh, this is the dark stuff that we secretly do as the CIA. It's really refreshing because I forgot this movie did this, that people weren't like hoorahing for every kill happening. Like we get in a lot of like modern media depictions of this work and stuff. It was like you had the one guy who was just like, yep, that's a kill. And like Jack Ryan's like, uh, I hope you weren't celebrating that because like this is just terrible. Like we are breaking so many international laws and stuff, but like doing what we must do, it's just arguably evil. But who knows? It's very conflicting, which I thought was very refreshing to have that perspective in the movie. I actually really enjoyed it. I would say like, I don't want to say shocked, but I was, I was delighted maybe is a word like to see something that had that perspective and it was from 1992 like that's cool I don't know if we would I feel like 
more people have that mindset in 2023, but I don't know if we would get media that portrays that mindset in 2023. We like our action to be lots of adrenaline and hoorahing and stuff because we just want it to never end in a movie, which is weird. But yeah, so then everything kind of like culminates into this dinner party at Jack Ryan's place because the Lord's like, oh, I want to go give an award to Mr. Jack Ryan, Sir Jack Ryan, right? Because they knight him. I forgot that they kind of like knighted him. And so they're at like Jack Ryan's place for like the last like 20, 25 minutes of the movie. So like the Lord just comes over to Jack Ryan's place for a dinner party. And I was like, this is weird. Like this would never fly ever again. Yeah, literally just a English lord coming over to casually have like dinner at some random cia agent's house in annapolis so they're having a dinner party and the lord's there for like a big budgetary because jack ryan was proposing something in the uk about some joint initiative or something between naval intelligences and so he was bringing that information over like this is what i'm gonna give to your government kind of thing of my proposition of our joint work together but then the power goes out we think it's a storm because the storm's happening right yeah it's like in time with a with a thunder but then we also realize that like oh this lord's like a manager guy assistant secretary guy he's he's a bad dude he's our secret informant and then we see this you know radical group led by what's his face not sean but the other guy who's in charge of him start storming the house and it becomes intense but like jack ryan quickly picks it up because he quickly looks outside because there's supposed to be a bunch of police and cia detail kind of like protecting the house because you know you have a lord from another country who's part of the defense ministry of the uk there so you're gonna have a lot of protective detail but he notices they're all gone finds a radio no one's picking up and he's like this ain't good so he gets samuel jackson to help him they find the the rat and they tie him up in the basement after like, you know, beating information out of him. And so he has Samuel L. Jackson's character, which I don't remember his name. Never remembered his name. Robbie, which is funny because it's actually Robbie Jackson. So we have Sean Bean playing Sean Miller and Samuel L. Jackson playing Robbie Jackson. So yeah, so Robbie is like trying to get everyone downstairs, but Jack can't find his wife and daughter. They went upstairs. The break-ins start happening. So Jack's kind of like, on the first level, ground level, trying to get to his wife and daughter while taking out a couple guys. Robbie's downstairs with everyone else, like Robbie's wife, the Lord. They're in the basement with the guy they've tied up, the rat. So Jack Ryan's like taking people out because it's pitch black, but they have night vision and like very cool action tense sequence. It's just, it's a lot of just tension, tension, tension throughout. A couple of people go upstairs. They try and get the wife and the daughter. Wife beats up uh, the chick of this terrorist group knocks her out jack gets upstairs helps them up they escape through the attic and get outside and go down the side of the house into the roof and then they make it to the basement and so the guys can't find them and so they think they ran outside but then the rat makes a big giant noise because jack's like how were they planning to escape because he's trying to think to himself of how to get like a step ahead of them He's like, there's boats. We probably have boats at the cliff. But then he screams really loudly, so they come storming into the basement. So they all make it out. And then it's really clever because they make it down the cliff as they're being chased and stuff. But like Jack's taken out two of these guys, I think, like one or two of these guys already. So there's only like it's Sean, what's her face and like the leader guy of them. Only ones are left. 
And so they're trying to chase them. They see someone in a boat taking off. So they think it's all of them in the boat, like the Lord's getting away. And there's the second boat. So they go for the second boat. But little did they know that Robbie got has everybody else but Jack at the cliff side hiding by the shore, which is really clever. It's like good, good training right there, Jack Ryan. Misdirection. And then it's just this weird boat chase fight epic thing. It's so weird. That's a good word for it. Because Sean is has been very much full of himself because he only cares about revenge on Jack Ryan for killing his brother. So he ends up killing his other two comrades who are no longer comrades because he kills them. So yeah, it. I I think I mean it was clear that the Sean like the Sean character like the character arc there was like driven crazy by revenge, but it didn't necessarily like communicate that way outside of like and now he's crazy and now he's shooting people and i was like wow that that it just it felt very like sudden and even though i knew that that was the motivation and he was like i don't give a fuck about this like hostage thing anymore like i want to avenge my brother's death it still just seemed a little like oh oh okay like (laughs) got it (laughs) it kind of like arguably made him like a very bad hot-headed character because like before he was able to be convinced of like don't fall in too much with your emotions a little bit but like yeah i think that's like one of the weak spots of this movie was just his character but like he's the bad guy in this movie so like they don't care in this era of filmmaking anyways, of making the bad guys more than one-dimensional, so yay. Sean ends up getting the boat to Jack Ryan, and they end up, like, he hops onto the boat or something. It's, it's just a mess. Honestly, it's hard to see as well, because it's, like, in the middle of the ocean, raining in the pitch black. Yeah, he jumps onto, onto Ryan's boat. Yeah, and they end up, like, duking it out. I kind of like started tabbing out at this point in the movie to do research because I remember seeing this a lot. So like, I don't remember everything, but they duke it out and and Jack Ryan ends up like impaling him with the, uh, oh, what's it called? The anchor of the boat or something like that. Yeah, like a fish, like a, a hook, a boat hook. So he ends up killing him, which is also different because in the book he doesn't kill him, but also this weird boat thing doesn't happen kind of. I don't remember particularly. I thought there was an underwater battle in the book which they actually also shot. And then so they reshot the sequence because it actually confused the audience of having a the underwater scene that they shot because it was hard to see anything. So I was like, okay, I guess it's one step up because you're not underwater because I feel like it'd be worse to watch as an audience member if it was. So Jack takes them out and kind of like all loose ends are tied up. So Jack makes it back to shore and they're kind of like, debriefing with everyone and everyone's okay and safe and happy all the evil has been eradicated you know classic you know american heroic and then we get the most epic of cliffhangers let me tell you adam (laughs) tell me chandler (laughs) the biggest cliffhanger ever so this whole time jack's wife has also been newly pregnant right so at the end of the movie they get a phone call and it's really intense I mean, I thought it was really intense. And we learned it's the doctor. They're about to know the gender of the baby. And then we don't get to find out. I don't think we ever learned because I think Claire and Present Danger's set before this movie. Fascinating. Did you read about the uh, the fun facts about the reshoot of that underwater scene? No. 
So Harrison Ford actually hit Sean Bean with the boat hook, and he now has a permanent scar over his eye. Yes, I do remember this story from forever ago. Yes. So yeah, I mean, so that's kind of like the synopsis of that movie. What I really found interesting about this movie was the score specifically. Like some of it's like from like Mozart and and stuff like that. It's reorchestrated Mozart, but like a lot of the original score, it really understood how to make things intense. Even like like specifically like hopping back to Jack Ryan watching them take out this uh, terrorist camp in Libya, where you're like he's just watching computer screens and like the the score and the editing in conjunction did such a good job of like amping up that emotion that we were feeling with Jack Ryan. The intensity of like the stress of like hopefully we get all these people, but also I'm very conflicted right now as an operative of the US was very well done. The score in that moment did not match like the energy uh, like we were talking about of like that yeah, that guy's definitely dead or like that's a killer or whatever. Like it absolutely matched Jack Ryan's character in that moment. Like that score was for him. That's that's my one biggest takeaway. I mean, Harrison Ford and the score. Like that's those are the big things of this movie, I feel like. Cause nothing else was just like unique action wise. It was just like, yep, that's usual. Agreed. Well, if you don't have anything else, I can jump into mine. Oh yeah. Perfect. So as I mentioned before, I picked the imitation game. So this was much more recent, 2014, which is crazy that that is actually almost 10 years ago. That actually hurts me inside. And directed by Morton Tildum. I would like to put a disclaimer out here ahead of time that I did not realize that this was a movie that was produced by the Weinstein estate. That is very unfortunate that it was produced by that particular estate and that that particular man's name is still attached to this movie. Apologies about that. I feel like that's going to happen with a lot of movies for a while. It's just the the curse of it all. So I will talk about this movie, I think, in broader strokes, because ultimately there's not a whole lot that actually happens during this film really at all. I cannot definitively say that I liked this movie. Um, To be fair, even though I picked it, I had not seen it before. So I knew a little bit more of the historical fact side than I knew about this film. Our film focuses on a gentleman who was a, a real figure in history whose name is Alan Turing. This movie is, if you look it up, it says it's based on the biography I would say that it took some things from the biography. My whole film is placed in the UK. I did enjoy that because we were not getting US politics. I enjoyed that we were seeing some like UK politics sort of stuff. And so the UK government communications headquarters, the departmental historian from that sect said, Um, He has a quote, and it's, quote, the imitation game only gets two things absolutely right. There was a second world war, and Turing's first name was Alan. And I was like, oof. (laughs) Now, that is like a really critical statement that is specifically calling out like the historical inaccuracies of the film. But ultimately, the relatives of Turing who saw the movie did say that they felt like it painted him in a in a very like positive way. They felt like it honored him, which I thought was interesting. 
the focus of this like film is that Turing is a genius, like in, incredibly smart, wickedly smart. He's a mathematician. He applies for a like code breaker position amongst the government in the in the midst of World War II. They this group is dedicated to trying to crack a coding machine, and I'm sure there are fancier words for this, but specifically this this film focuses on um, the one called Enigma, which is what the Nazis are using to send coded messages um, about like where attacks are going to be and just other sensitive and information and and things like that. Enigma is the the Nazi end all be all communications, encrypted communications. What is kind of like it brackets this film, I would say, and also is kind of like sprinkled in, in between. Our movie actually starts with Turing being investigated at a police station. And we don't exactly know why yet. And we find out eventually that he is being investigated because he is gay. And at this time, it is illegal to be gay in, in the United Kingdom. And so he is talking to this policeman about everything that he has done for the military, for the, for the UK government. And he's just like sitting there and he's like, and yet I'm like considered a criminal, basically. That is really the entirety of the film is him working with this group to just like crack these codes. So there are some, there are some cool things that happen in between in the film. And I will talk about whether they were historically accurate or not. So uh, the answer is always going to be they were not. They are working at a, a specific place called Bletchley Park. There is the commander whose name is Alistair Denniston. And he is the one who like has formed this group. He's hired everybody within the group. He himself hired Turing, put Turing in the group, but did not make Turing the like head of the group. He makes this guy named Hugh, like the what would be considered like the, you know, platoon, the squadron leader or whatever, even though these these guys aren't seeing like any action. What happens is Turing does not realize that he has to be a team player. And while the other guys are sitting there day after day trying to like interpret code, Turing is instead designing like a code breaking machine that he believes would like fix everything or like solve everything, not fix everything. Enigma is a machine and therefore they need a machine to beat a machine because humans aren't going to be able to like beat the machine because part of something that they say uh, that he says in narration in the film is like, people think that we were fighting against the Nazis, but really we were fighting against time. And um, I thought that that was actually a, a pretty good quote because the Enigma code reset every night at midnight. So if they didn't like crack it that day, all of their work is for naught and they have to start from ground zero the following day. No, like Turing's kind of an asshole. And something that I think is really interesting is all historical accounts of Alan Turing say he was actually nothing like he was portrayed in the movie, that he was actually very sociable. He got along with people. And in the film, he portrayed very on the autism spectrum. In his death, people have speculated that 
he had Asperger's, which is not something that we as a society, I believe are, are um, saying anymore. I think even, even like medically, I believe we are moving away from the use of Asperger's because that was a like German Nazi affiliated person who that like that had that name. And so just sticking with like the autism spectrum. Um, but obviously that was not confirmed while Turing was alive. And so everything past that is speculation. Um, but we, we do know that he had like a crazy high IQ. Like he was in the top 0.1% of, of the world in terms of his intelligence and things like that. And so his intelligence in the film is played uh, oh, I should say Alan Turing's played by Benedict Cumberbatch. We actually have like a very high profile actor playing this character. And I do believe, I mean, I, I thoroughly, I thoroughly enjoyed the way that he was played. Um, I, I, I think that Cumberbatch did, did a great job with this, with this interpretation of the character. And to the point actually where even one of Turing's relatives made a statement to the press that Cumberbatch knew things about Alan Turing that like he himself did not know as a relative of Turing. So he was like, he really did his research and like took his time to like really dive in and and figure out things. (laughs) Turing goes to Deniston to be like, I need to build this machine. And Deniston's like, well, every single person that you work with has filed a complaint against you. And unless you respond to those complaints, I really can't like help you with anything. And then he goes, okay, I acknowledge the complaint. I think they should all be fired and I need a hundred thousand pounds. And I was like, wow, the, the balls on this guy. So basically he's like, your commanding officer who's Hugh, you know, declined your request for the parts for this machine. And so he turns around and he's like, well, who's your commanding officer? And he's like, Winston Churchill, and like gives the address. And then the next thing we know, Turing is running after this guy, Menzies, who is the, he's a a chief of a certain sect of the British Secret Intelligence Service. Um, And he's kind of a part of this group overseeing it. But Denniston is like the one who's actually kind of in charge of it. And so he, Menzies is like leaving in a car Turing catches up to him and is like, are you going to London by chance? And he's like, yes. And he's like, will you deliver this letter for me? And it is a letter to Winston Churchill. And we don't necessarily know what the letter says by any means, but we can imagine that it was, you know, him basically explaining why he's right and why everybody else is wrong. And the next thing we know, Winston Churchill has appointed Turing as the head of this like code breaking group. Hugh has been demoted. Deniston is pissed. Like he's not happy about this at all. And he's like, but it came from Winston Churchill. So there's nothing that we can do about this. Turing immediately fires two of the people in this group is just like zero regard for anything just fires them. They're like, well, now we're short staffed. He's like, easy, I got this. So he makes a crossword puzzle that they put in the newspapers. Whoever solves the crossword puzzle becomes a candidate for this like group. And they all get recruited and they all come in to take this test. And that is where we meet 
arguably, I think, my favorite character, Joan Clark, who is a woman. And you can imagine that in 19, where are we? 1942. Well, as this is happening, it's 19, it's 1939 when he gets, when Turing gets like contracted to the group. So we can imagine maybe like a year later. So we'll say like 1939, that a woman is not allowed in these spaces. And they even make a whole scene of that of this guy trying to tell her that the secretary room is upstairs, blah, blah, blah. But Turing clearly does not care that she's a woman and only cares that she solved the crossword puzzle and is a valid candidate. And she also happens to be the first one to solve the task that all of these candidates are given. Turing gives them six minutes uh, Menzies turns to him and says, "Like, can this really be solved?" Or, or Hugh, someone turns to him and is like, "Can this really be solved in six minutes?" And he's like, "Absolutely not. It takes me eight. And Joan finished in five minutes and thirty-eight seconds. And he's like, "You finished?" And she said, "You said to finish under six minutes." Um, so we learn that like Joan is also incredibly brilliant. So it's her and this other guy that get brought on to be cryptographers. There's a whole subplot here of. Joan like initially declines the position because her parents are like, you're a woman, this isn't like following decorum, like you working with a bunch of men living alone, like blah, 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 blah. Turing like shows up at her house and they start kind of having a discussion and he catches on to why she can't do the job because her parents are there. And he says, oh, well, we also have this group of women who you know, intake all of the calls, would that be a more suitable position? He was like, there's plenty of decorum in that job, whatever. So that's what she accepts. But he throughout the movie, like, funnels her code to help like them with the rest of the cryptography and like solving it, even though she's actually living and working kind of like with these women who are intercepting the German messages that are going out. So we kind of have that whole part of it. Then because Turing's in charge, he builds his machine and he names it Christopher. And through flashbacks, we learn that Christopher is a childhood friend that Turing had. It is the only friend that Turing had when he was in school because he was severely bullied. And we also don't know outright. It's never said outright, but we can, again, very clearly infer that Turing was in love with Christopher as kids. And we don't know what happens until the very end of the movie, really, um, where we get a final flashback that Christopher had tuberculosis, never told Turing, and died. And Turing only found out because his headmaster called him into like the room to to like tell him. And he was like, well, as you know, like Christopher had tuberculosis and he died. And like the that child actor, wow, give that kid an Oscar. That was heartbreaking. That was really, really difficult to to watch. And it, it definitely made me it made me feel. That was crazy. We find out, you know, he named his machine Christopher, so we can understand the sentiment there now. Then we kind of pop forward. It's truly the bulk of this movie is them just failing at being able to solve the code like that, that it's just this kind of like one note tension. And sometimes the one note can get boring. I didn't find it. I didn't find it boring. I, I enjoyed that we were just seeing them fail constantly as much as that might sound weird. So then we get Turing and Jones kind of arc, which is Jones parents 
are like, you're 25, you're single, unmarried, living alone, come home. This is no longer suitable. And Turin kind of freaks out at that. And his response is he proposes to Joan. He's like, let's get married. And she's like, okay, sounds good. Because they had been, they had been like emotionally intimate, I will say. And I want to be clear that to me, it did not necessarily come off as romantic, just as like two souls who understood each other. And so it did not necessarily seem totally out of the blue that Turing's response would have been like, I am going to propose to you to, to keep you here because that will like appease your parents. Then at the engagement party, Turing has this moment where he's watching Joan dance with Hugh and he's sitting next to one of the other guys that he works with and he just, his face just drops and this guy asks Turing like, what's wrong? And his response is, what if I don't fancy Joan in that way? This guy, his name's John. He responds by basically being like, because you're a homosexual. And he was like, yeah, I kind of had a suspicion. Like I kind of, I kind of guessed. He was like, should I, Turing was like, should I tell her? And it was a very like lighthearted conversation. It wasn't as heavy as one might expect that conversation to be at that time with such a, you know, profound statement about yourself. And he's, John's response is like, well, in my very limited experience, uh, like women tend to not react well to finding out that they're engaged to a homosexual and basically being like, keep this to yourself. Don't talk about it. Move on. But like, there wasn't anything dark or even like sad, which was interesting about that interaction. It was just kind of like, this is the way that it is. Meanwhile, we have this other kind of plot line that's going on that Deniston comes in with a bunch of soldiers and they start like ripping through the space where this crypt- these cryptographers are working because one of them has been found out to be a spy for the Soviet Union, but they don't know who. And Deniston deeply dislikes Turing, is basically like gunning for him, thinks it's him without a doubt, like just can't prove it. Like the soldiers don't turn up with anything like that they found. And so ultimately like Deniston can't do anything. And this is where Joan starts to come into play because I kind of jumped ahead a little bit, but before they get engaged, like Joan helps Turing gain the respect of the other cryptographers because Deniston comes in and is like, I want the machine unplugged. I want Turing fired. If he had done it any sooner, Turing would have been gone. But instead, he did it a little bit too late because Joan helped Turing be like more sociable. And in doing that, like this, this one scene just made me laugh because Hugh very clearly liked Joan from the get go, like enjoyed her, her existence. And Turing was like, you made him like you. How did you do that? She was like, well, I'm a woman in a man's field. I don't have the luxury of being an asshole like you. So he comes into work. And he's just handing out apples to all of these guys. And they're all like, okay, like, what's up? And he's like, well, Miss Clark, Joan, um, told me that, um, you know, maybe you guys would appreciate if I brought you something. So I brought you apples. And they were like, all kind of cracking these really like small smiles because they can tell that he's trying. And but like, someone just says like, thanks. And one guy's like, I like apples. And then, and then he's just standing like Tony's just standing there straight face. And he goes into a joke. So deadpan, 
starts telling this joke and it's basically that joke about like two guys getting chased by a bear one guy stops to pray and one guy starts tying his shoes and he's like i don't have to be fast i just have to be faster than you doesn't laugh again just like all these guys like crack these smiles and then turns like okay well I'll be in my office and then then like goes and continues working. And like, that was kind of the turning point of these guys being like, Turing's not so bad. And that is why when Deniston comes in and tries to like gun for Turing's job, the guys all threaten to quit if Turing gets fired. Therefore he does not get fired. So they are out and about at the uh, engagement party And there's this friend of Jones who's like talking to her and she's kind of got eyes for Hugh, whatever, blah, blah, blah. That's like a very small part of this film. Uh, He was very clearly like a woman's man. This woman who works in that same unit with Joan of like intercepting these German messages or whatever mentions that she thinks or she mentions something about like her German person having a girlfriend and that like clicks something for turing and he's like how do you know and she's like oh it's just like a silly joke he's like no how do you know she says that he starts every single letter that he writes with c-i-l-l-y and so she has assumed that that is like his girlfriend's like name or whatever and Turing runs out. All of the guys are like, why are we running? And run after him back to the code breaking machine because he realizes that like he can adjust Christopher, the machine Christopher, to basically like interpret code that they have already managed to decipher. And that with that like beginning messaging, they can decode everything thereafter. And it works. Because they they realize like, oh, there's going to be words that are going to be always used because Nazis be Nazis. They're always going to say Heil Hitler at the end of their messages. And they also realize like weather will be a common thing because every 6 a.m. first transmission talks about the weather of the day, especially for, you know, the U-boats that are out there sinking ships in the Atlantic. And so that all gets like those words that they know get input into the machine and that cracks everything open and they are now able to beat Enigma, basically. They can decode the Enigma code using the Christopher machine. Uh, To me, one of the saddest parts of this movie is when they start being able to learn all of the coordinates and everything about like the German U-boats and stuff. They are looking at where everything's laid out and Joan realizes that they are minutes away from sinking a passenger ship. Hugh goes to make a call, like urgent call, like warning people and Turing grabs the phone, breaks it. Hugh's like, what the hell? Like punches Turing. He's like, what is going on? Everybody slowly realizes that they can't just all of a sudden like have a convoy ship rerouted and have air bombers take out these U-boats because the Germans would realize that their Enigma code had been compromised and they would just change it. So they have to be really specific about what intelligence they pass on and what intelligence they don't. And there's a really young guy who's a part of this team. He's clearly the youngest and he's the one who's like, I like apples. He mentions earlier in the movie how he has a bunch of relatives who are working in the military, who who are deployed, who are fighting actively 
and he looks at this like cork board full of where all the ships are and which ships and everything and he realizes that his brother is on one of the ships that this team is about to let die it's a slow realization for him of like they're not going to do anything because they they can't and he makes a statement about like to Turing of like you don't get to play or like we don't get to play God and Turing's like yes we do and and the kid's like why and Turing says because nobody else can and it's basically that understanding of like we have all this information and we can save thousands of lives but we have to do it really strategically and like people are going to die and then we get to a point where Turing is looking over this like coded paper that is what got Deniston to realize that there was a Soviet spy amongst them after realizing the code was cracked and realizing that it was a a specific like quote from from the Bible he realizes that his friend who he told at the um, engagement party that he was gay is the Soviet spy and there's a confrontation between the two of them where John is basically like, if you tell people I'm the Soviet spy, I'll tell people you're gay. They're kind of like at odds um, with with those pieces of information. We later jump to back, Menzies comes back, and he kind of like threatens Joan, not directly. He threatens Joan to Turing about like getting her thrown into jail because he uh Turing goes over to Joan's place and Menzies is there looking at all of the pieces of classified information that she should not have at these like women's quarters. And Turing's like, I gave those to her, whatever, blah, blah, blah. And Menzies is basically like, well, she's in jail. So that that's crazy. But if you work with me, you know, then we we might have something, you know, to say because Turing then goes uh, John, like John is the the Soviet spy, and Menzies basically says like, "Oh, I know. I've known since before he got here that he was the spy." He was like, "Isn't it wonderful being able to siphon any information that we want directly to Stalin?" Then and then like basically goes and is like, "Oh, also Joan is not in jail. I lied to you, but I can't wait for this partnership of you helping me leak specific information to." Stalin. And Menzies was not a spy. Like he wasn't working for the Soviet Union. He was approaching it from a standpoint of like, we can use this to basically feed him anything that we want and think that, you know, we are as like the UK, like a government that like is kind of puppeteering him without him knowing that he's being puppeteered. It's very Churchill being very secretive of high class intelligence information because I mean, historically, we've learned post-World War II, Churchill was very protective of what the UK learned because he was dealing with a country that ended up being bombed a lot as the war progressed to the point he was scared of an invasion from the sea. So yeah, so like politically, all of that is going on throughout this movie in terms of like tension and little bits of dialogue here and there with like this code breaking being kind of the main focus. So we jump to the the next scene that we see after Turing meeting with Menzies is he is meeting with Joan and he's like, we're breaking off our engagement. I'm gay. And also I've never actually cared about you. I uh, only liked you for your cryptography skills. See you never. And uh, she, he was like, go home. And she slaps him across the face. One thing that I think is really interesting is that throughout this whole movie, 
there is a repeated phrase of, of Turing telling people, do you know why people commit violence? And he says, it's because it feels good. And he says it after he gets punched by Hugh. He says it in narration a couple different times, um, one being when he was being bullied back in grade school, like all of that. I, it didn't come up here, but I felt like it was really interesting that like it has violence had just been set up as this thing that gets done because it feels good. And she just slapped him across the face, probably to feel better because he just did lie to her, to her face that he never cared about her. Because even though he did not, he was not in love with her because he's gay, like he did very much care for her. And so everything that he said was to make her go away. He wanted to try to keep her safe. And this is Joan's big like turning arc of like, screw you, screw my parents. I'm going to do whatever I want to do. And what I want to do is stay. And so that's what she does. She stays. And then at kind of the end of everything, Menzies like, great job. The code's, you know, been broken, all this stuff, burn everything to the ground. And all of you also never going to see each other ever again. And that is like kind of how everything amongst them ends. More or less, we get a scene now of Turing has been convicted of quote, gross indecency. And literally all that means is that he was convicted of being gay. He was convicted of having sexual relations with a man. And what is crazy is that in the movie, what got Turing caught was a, he, there was a break into his house and he reported the break in and the police showed up. He was like, I, or sorry, he didn't report the break in. He reported the break-in in real life. In the movie, his neighbor reports the break-in. He's like, I don't want police here. Go away. It was very off-putting. And one of the police is like, oh, that's, that seemed intentional. Like That seemed like if you were trying to hide something, wouldn't you be like super off-putting? And so he starts digging into Turing because he has now become convinced that Turing is a spy. He tails Turing and sees Turing hand off an envelope to this guy at a, outside a bar. So he tails that guy, winds up arresting that guy to get information, and finds out that this guy is someone who has sexual relations with men for money. And that is what happened is Turing paid him money for the relations that they had. So that is how Turing literally gets arrested is because of of that whole thing. The options become a prison sentence, like it's like a two-year prison sentence, or chemical castration. And he chooses to undergo chemical castration because his work is so important to him that he wants to be able to continue working. And we see Joan comes to visit him. She learns that he has been, chem or is undergoing, I guess, like chemical castration. And he's a mess. He's He is like mentally not there at all, very mentally gone. He can't do the crossword puzzle and his hands are shaking. It's kind of like a whole thing. That is like the last scene, quote unquote, that we get because then our epilogue is just overlaid on top of these images of that cryptographer team, like burning all of their documents and everything are like captions that say that Turing died by suicide on June 7th, 1954, which was a year after the government government mandated hormonal therapy. And in 2013, Queen Elizabeth II granted Turing a royal pardon 
um, after he died and basically like honored everything that he did because it truly was his work that helped go on to create the modern computer, a lot of his information and, and the way that his mathematical mind worked. So that's the movie part. Let me talk about what was like real and accurate and what was not. Before we dive in, I mean, we got to give this movie its social action credit because I did read sure. that, um, like, I think it was like Cumberbatch, Stephen Fry, who's this uh, British comedian, also Harvey Weinstein, it turns out, and uh, Turing's great niece launched a campaign to pardon the other 49,000 men and women that were convicted under this gay law because uh, Queen Elizabeth only had pardoned Turing in, historically in 2013. So they launched this campaign in 2015 of like, she's done it for this man, but let's you know pardon everyone else who's convicted under these unfair laws, which is like really cool that that happened. And ultimately in 2017, that did come to pass in that there was the Policing and Crime Act of 2017, which was in it, it's informally called like the Alan Turing Law, and it's an it's an amnesty law that pardons all of those men who were historically like convicted or outlawed for homosexual acts. You know that that is definitely huge. Um, that is that is definitely a huge part of this movie or this movie's um effect, I would say. But now the fact that it still took for till 2017 for that to happen in England is fucked up. But here we are. Some things. The name of the machine in real life was actually not Christopher. It was called Victory. And it was by no means an individual like thing that Turing did at all. It it was like a huge collaborative effort. It also wasn't the only machine. There were like more than 200 that were built. Because they're, they're known as like bomb machines with an E at the end of bomb because the specific was taken like the, what the movie got right, taken some from that Polish mathematician he mentioned, but then also another mathematician that Turing actually worked with at the park to develop it further to crack other codes because it wasn't just the enigma they cracked they like cracked a bunch of other encryption communication codes as well so that was kind of like a thing and also not a single one of those bombs were at bletchley park also something very interesting (laughs) that whole idea of like there being a, a sudden breakthrough that like caused them to like break enigma also very much not the case it was a it was a long effort of of actually like they yes they had that realization but to actually like get that encoded and like figured out and processed was not like an instantaneous thing by any means enigma was not the only german like coding that existed it was a huge one for sure but it's the only one that's ever mentioned in the movie and therefore it seems like it's the only one in existence and there were other ones um the one that specifically gets mentioned is i I think it's pronounced tunny it's either tunny or tuny it's t-u-n-n-y that the lorenz cipher i think it's also known as yes the yeah exactly the the lorenz cipher so that that was like also equally as important to break that so it's just it was things like that also like i've read something that like 
the code breakers themselves didn't decide what information, intelligence information to act on. That was definitely people higher up because the movie definitely made it seem like, oh, these guys who code cracked all these things are also going to do all the statistics and make decisions to the MI6 and stuff. And it's just like, no. No, they just sent that information on and intelligence decided what to do because they had clearly much more information than these, you know, mathematicians and puzzle solvers and stuff. Exactly. And the guy who played the really young kid with the brother in real life did not have a brother. So that was that was purely for dramatic effect. And that again, that team would not have made that call. They would have just passed that information to the higher ups. Turing did actually like kind of was in contact, I guess, with Winston Churchill in a way, but he, it was not a loan request. That was not something that he just like went AWOL to do. The guy Hugh actually in real life also was a part of writing that letter to Churchill and Churchill had actually visited Bletchley Park earlier. So it also wasn't like a bunch of random guys who just like were reaching out. The whole crossword puzzle recruit stuff, there were puzzles that were used by Bletchley Park for recruitment, but Turing and Joan Clark were never involved with any of them. Joan Clark was actually a very accomplished mathematics student, and her academic supervisor uh, recruited her to the government code and cipher school. That's more interesting, in my opinion. Yeah, yeah. She, I think that's way cooler, me too, than like just randomly solving like a code. God, why did they Hollywood this movie up so much? Yeah, exactly. That was like, people People said that this like, I'll, well, I'll get to that. But yeah, it was very like a lot of creative liberties were taken with those things. When it comes to like Turing himself, things were a little, things were a little, weird. Like I said, the movie really tried to hit on this idea of him being like socially awkward and not being able to work with people well and like stuff like that. And again, he was known as being super sociable, had a lot of friends, had a great sense of humor, and his colleagues got along with him very well. So that was not real. Yeah, it's it seems like they were trying to like do the classic Hollywood like loner genius who's misunderstood kind of thing that is like such a common and like I've been angered by that trope because like I remember I think I I saw brilliant a brilliant mind with like Russell Crowe in the lead. A beautiful mind. Right. And I was just like angry with that movie. That is 100% one of the things that someone compared this movie to was um, A Beautiful Mind and the Theory of Everything and said it's a part of the trend of, quote, a glossy scientific, scientific biopic. So this is from a computing historian. His name is Thomas Hay. And this was from the Communications of the ACM. It's a journal. It, he said that this goes together with the likes of A Beautiful Mind and the Theory of Everything as a part of a trend of glossy scientific biopics that emphasize those famous scientists who were surrounded by tragedy rather than those who found contented lives, which in turn affects the way some kinds of people work and have become famous and others have not. They also took a lot of creative liberties with the chemical castration effects. First of all, there is no record of Joan ever going to visit him after anything. Now they were in contact and I believe she was aware that of his like conviction and everything, but there's no record of her actually going to visit him. And also there is zero record of him experiencing any physical distress 
or like changes to his like mental processing. His friends like went on record as saying that like they never noticed any of that. The movie definitely made it feel like because of the chemical castration that he chose over life in prison or not like full like two years in prison led to him choosing suicide so you're telling me that's not the case i am and actually i will even get further into that which is the statement that he died by suicide a year after hormone treatment is also not completely factual it is actually a huge topic of debate whether it was suicide or not. So the chemical castration period lasted 14 months before his death. The official ruling was that it was death by suicide by consuming a cyanide-laced apple. The guy who wrote his biography, who wrote Alan Turing's biography, Andrew Hodges, fully believes that his death was indeed by suicide. Turing's favorite fairy tale was Snow White. And so he made some links there between like a weird poisoned apple death and Turing's favorite fairy tale, which was interesting, I felt like. However, there is a lot of suggestion that the death might have been accidental and might have been caused by cyanide fumes that were produced during an experiment that he was doing in his spare room. And so this guy, Jack Copeland, who it was an editor of Turing's work and is also the director of the Turing Archive for the History of Computing, thinks that the investigation was poorly conducted. And he believes that it was the cyanide fumes take. Um, so even the death by suicide is not 100% confirmed. Yeah, that sounds like a very nice uh, ending for Creative Liberty with the Snow White parallel i can see someone doing that for book sales like not to not to make any accusations or anything like sure sure and like but at the same time like and we don't see this in the in the movie but because turing was convicted of being gay he was actually not allowed to help with the cold war at all because homosexuals were not allowed in government or the military so that is why i think that the death by suicide is, is still a theory that can exist because the whole reason he went through chemical castration was to continue his work and be able to help and things like that but then to turn around and due to his conviction literally not be able to work and not be able to like make that impact that's kind of about turing with our other characters there is zero evidence that turing and john the soviet spy ever actually crossed paths there is also no documentation that tells us that Deniston or Menzies ever crossed paths with Turing. Also, Deniston's grandkids are very unhappy with the way that their grandfather was portrayed in this film. They said that the movie really took a lot of liberty trying to make him like a, a bad guy. And they said that their grandfather was super supportive of all of the work done by the cryptographers under his command and that he had a very like completely different temperament than what was portrayed. They even went on record by saying Turing was always respected and considered one of the best code breakers at Bletchley Park. The only other thing which was so small is there's a brief moment where they say that Hugh won the British Chess Championship twice. And that was at the beginning of the film, like when they were being introduced. It is true, he did win twice, but he won once 
before the war, and he actually didn't win the second time until 1956 after the war. What's the point? This movie just lies. I that, yeah. that fact alone does it. That's it. I I quit. I just can't. And that's and so that's why I say like I do think that I enjoyed this movie for sure, but it's a it's definitely it is a movie. Like I wouldn't even say it's a film. I was like it's a movie. It took a lot of creative liberty, and that was like the biggest criticism that it had. Like people, like I said, people liked the film. Turing's surviving like relatives felt like it portrayed him in a great light but ultimately like it was a a super heavy-handed creatively influenced piece and it also did get some pushback for never actually showing or anything like outside of the one line that Turing has to John where he says should I tell her that I'm a homosexual there is actually zero other things that happens in the film on Turing's end that really give us any insight into his sexuality. We never see anything with him and Christopher in the flashbacks. We don't even see anything with him and the guy that got arrested who like ratted him out that he gave money to. That is my other thing. This is this is the last thing that I'll I'll say. I don't love that either because in reality Turing was 39 years old and that kid was 19, which is kind of not something that I like. I mean, he's legal age, sure. But the age difference there and and it being more like a transactional based thing was interesting. But we don't we don't find that out in the movie either. Like they they hired an actor that definitely looked age appropriate to Benedict Cumberbatch. But yeah, I, you know, I, I think I think the movie did a good job at highlighting the tension that was there of like not being like so much devastation and destruction was happening because of these unbreakable codes and how important it was that these cryptographers get it you know figured out and i think it did a great job at that everything else was a creative liberty actually um it even one of the the controversies actually was as well sorry i know i said i was done i'm not um apparently like joan and turing did not have nearly as close of a relationship as was played upon in the film. Turing's niece said, A, she felt like, oh yeah, Joan Clark was played by Kira Knightley. She said that she felt like Knightley was actually inappropriately cast because Clark was, quote, rather plain. And even said, so her quote also was that, I think they might be trying to romanticize it. It makes me a bit mad. You want the film to show it as it was, not a lot of nonsense. It seems like even that side of stuff was like played up. You know, the what came out of the movie obviously was really good with that law in 2017 going into into action and, and giving giving some respect back to those 49,000 people. But the movie itself in terms of the, you know, realistic historical accuracies gets about a, a 1%. There was a World War Two, and Turing's first name was Alan. Because like I knew, I knew a lot about Alan Turing from like, you know, being someone at a young age who dove into computers and stuff, and learning learning that like Turing kind of helped with a lot of initial theories of how computers eventually became, you know, the modern versions of computers we now know today. How a lot of that groundwork started with Turing as a mathematician of how to compute things very quickly and effectively and not get you know not have so many errors 
I also know, like, because, you know, I'm a big fan of science fiction films and stuff, like, the Turing test always comes up as, like, this big old sci-fi thing all the time of it's the test to determine if something's human or a machine. I think Turing, during his lifetime, had a lot of interesting theorizing of the future of technology just based on what he was able to develop in his lifetime of how he can kind of foresee where we could take it as the human race and being like, well, we got to get to the point where we got to like differentiate machines between humans. And that basis is, you know, spawned on the internet with all those captcha tests and stuff of like, pick the bicycles in these images and stuff like that. So you're not a robot, you know, it's like baseline stuff that like Turing kind of inadvertently helped develop and everyone bases off of cool that this movie uh was so inaccurate but it was a good watch i enjoyed it while i was watching it i I guess i can say i i did enjoy i also don't i am on the same bandwidth as you as i don't love the like isolated loner is are they on the spectrum and then you having an actor that's not trying to portray that and things like that kind of stuff but overall i i did i did enjoy it i think that's gonna wrap it up for us but next week, we're going to dive into some war films. And I think we've each picked one based in World War II. Just our luck, you know? It's not like there's a plethora of movies about World War II or anything. So it's actually crazy that that's what happened. It's not like the Hollywood system really loves World War II movies or something. Well, my movie for next week that I picked is Midway from 2019, directed by Roland Emmerich. And my movie is U571 from 2000, directed by Jonathan Mostow. But it's got good old Matthew McConaughey and Bill Paxton, so I'm excited to see a Bill Paxton film. I think we have lots of cool stuff to, to talk about for next week. So, so yeah, that's that's been Resonant Reels. You can find us on all the socials, like, subscribe, comment, all the fun things. Got recommendations for us, let us know. I have not been Chandler. And I have not been Adam. And we'll catch you guys next week.